You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Michelle Seitz runs Russell Investments. She's chairman and chief executive officer. Russell is a investing giant. They manage $330 billion or more. They do almost $3 trillion a year in annual trades. They advise on another $2.8 trillion. Uh, they're just a giant firm. About half of their business comes from overseas, from outside of the U.S. She is a highly regarded executive and a member of a small club of women who run giant asset management firms. We talk a little bit about that. We talk about how they've expanded out of uh, beta and, and indexing into a broader range of investing. Outsourced CIO is, is a large and fast-growing business line of theirs, as well as uh, alternative investments and how they're expanding their platform to include that. Uh, this is really a, a very much investing industry conversation if you're at all interested in what it's like to run a giant uh, company that's in dozens and dozens of countries and have thousands and thousands of employees, uh, you're going to find this to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Michelle Seitz of Russell Investments. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Michelle Seitz. She is the chairman and chief executive officer of Russell Investments. The firm manages over $331 billion with an additional $2.8 trillion under advisement. They trade over $2.6 trillion in equities a year. Half of their revenues comes from outside of the United States. Michelle Seitz is a member of all the usual lists. Most Powerful Women in Finance, The Power 100, Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance. I'll stop right there, but we'll add Michelle Seitz, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thank you very much for having me. So let me jump to my first question. So you spent about 21 years at William Blair. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the finance industry. Sure, sure. Um well, going, going back, um, I decided early on uh, that it was what I wanted to do. So before I applied to colleges, I decided that I wanted to go into business. And that was 
the cumulative impact of several things, like many people in life, uh, influenced by my parents. Um, first, my, my father was very influential uh, in my formative years, but especially as it revolved around business and dealing with people. He was a second-generation entrepreneur, and from the age of 12, I worked by his side after school on the weekends uh, during summer, and he really uh, was quite impactful in how I decided to pursue a degree and which college to go to. Um, on the on the flip side, my my mother was very influential, and I would say more from the standpoint of the impact I wanted to have, and um, and kind of I guess I would say control um, for financial stability. She worked very hard, uh, but it was a long and difficult path for her. My parents divorced when I was young, and so I just I saw firsthand um, the need. Uh, to leverage people's hard work uh, and drive them toward financial security, and so I wanted to master money. I guess is the best <laughs> the best way to phrase it. So I read all those money master books by I think it was John Train, uh, Buffett shareholder letters, um, etc. But I was just fascinated with the miracle of compound interest and the like. But but really, what hooked me on investing was a high school field trip. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Indiana. We took a bus trip to Chicago. Uh, it was with my advanced chemistry class, actually, and the main show was the Museum of Science and Industry, but we took a quick detour, fortuitously for me, at the Chicago Board of Trade, and I was hooked. I love the passion the energy uh, from the floor, and that's when I decided that investing was what I wanted to do. So, um, so that that uh, set me on my trajectory uh, early on, and before I even set off for college. Huh. So, interestingly, post college, one of your first jobs in finance was in 1987. I've had a few guests who began their career the year the market took that horrific crash. Tell us about what that was like uh, so early in your career. What do you remember from that? Yeah, yeah. well, it was, you know, baptism by fire. So I had just graduated. Um, I loaded up all my my worldly goods in a U-Haul <laughs> and drove down uh, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to work with what was then uh, NCNB, which turned into Nations Bank, then Bank America, um, but um, but it was a phenomenal uh, culture. So I stepped foot into the investment industry in June of 1987. So a few months before uh, the baptism by fire. Um, but but I would say the the first leading up to that, I, I will just say what I remember the most about that year is it was a tale of all kinds of uh, cities. Um, the the first was I thought I'd missed it. Right. I mean, we had a tremendous bull market from 82 to 87. The Dow Jones had tripled, and I would sit there and talk with the veterans of the industry. All, you know, I was younger by a factor of 10 years, anyone else managing money. Um, but I, I really did think that I missed it, <laughs> that, you know, this was the best we'd, we'd ever had, and you wonder how much better it could get. And then you quickly uh, found yourself, or I found myself, 
uh, in baptism by fire um, with that fateful day, which was Black Monday, October 19th, when the market fell 20% in a single day. And I'll age myself with this story, but what I, what I remember most uh, were the lines at the Quotron. Do you remember Quotron? Sure. <laughs> so Quotrons, you, had to, you didn't have uh, anything at your desk and you didn't have 24-7 uh, TV. So you did line up at a Quotron, um, which were stationed in each of the major uh, corners of the, uh, of the trading desk and the, and the hallways, and you'd punch in your ticker symbols. And I remember I was dutifully punching in my ticker symbols because even with only three months under my belt, I was managing um, a few hundred million dollars. Um, and so I was very busy, focused on not losing my clients' money and how to lean in and make them money. And behind me uh, stood the CEO of the bank. Um, he was um, quite an imposing uh, figure within financial services, but Hugh McCall. And he was asking me all kinds of questions, and I was you know, being very serious and uh, answering them all without turning around and looking at who it was <laughs> posing the questions. The questions to me, and I was, you know, I was 23 years old, and um, he finally, he finally said, "Who are you, and what do you do? What do you do here?" <laughs> That's so, so I, funny. I started, yeah, I started rattling off my resume, and he said, <laughs> he said, "What qualifies you to manage money?" Which was a, which was a legitimate question, you know, three months, three months out of school. Um, but but anyway, I, I guess I guess that baptism by fire, and uh, and being being asked the question, what does qualify you to do this? had had me take it incredibly seriously. Um, I I number one understood that this is this is real money for real people who have real needs, and the emotions of people um, can be the greatest destroyers of wealth. And as a professional investor, that's what you've got to learn to um, harness uh, or eliminate from the decision-making process. Um, but it also made it the purpose of the industry quite real to me very, very fast. So when you're talking with people who really are fearful of being able to retire, being able to send kids to college, uh, the markets are in a free fall, it was it was a very good baptism by fire. Um, so I'm glad I saw what I thought was the peak. I'm glad I was was uh, so early in my career trajectory that I understood that this wasn't a game. Um, and I'm glad that I was that close uh, to the clients rather than being disintermediated, you know, with a mutual fund where you never talked with the end clients. Um, as much, and so it just made it it made it very serious. It made it very real, very quickly. Huh? And you received the firm's Rookie of the Year award. T- tell us about that. Oh well, um, well that was fun. <laughs> it was it was um, there was a big celebration uh, on the top floor of the building. Uh, Hugh came. Um, all of the executive team came uh, to celebrate the top investment performers in the investment division. And so um, I was invited to that. It was my first 
it was my first year. Um, and I, I would say that, you know, I didn't quite understand the import of it, uh, to be honest, until several very senior portfolio managers came up and said, you do understand how important it is to be seen here, <laughs> right? And and I said, of course, but I really, I really didn't. But it, it was most important, I would say, for my street cred uh, to be part of that, um, to be part of that group, and to uh, give me credibility, especially given, you know, my um, disproportionate youth. Uh, and frankly, inexperience. I mean, I, I did do well. Uh, one year does not prove skill, uh, to be quite frank, but um, 35 years hence, I, I think I learned a lot from that time period. Um, and I was a student, too, of of the, I would say, of the profession. And, and so that was very, very helpful to me in understanding how important it was to deliver on the value proposition to the clients and have it celebrated in the way that they did uh, was was really important. But it was uh, it was a great way. Frankly, the crash <laughs> and being rookie of the year was a was a great way to start my career. So the first, I don't know if I should call it half, but certainly the first part of your career, you're on the asset management side. You eventually rise to the leadership of William Blair, and now you serve as CEO of Russell Investments. How did managing assets and being part of a larger corporate entity help prepare you for your present leadership role? That's a really good question, especially the way you phrase it. Um, you know, not, not many people ask me about the similarities or the leverage from being an investor to being a leader. Um, so, so that's a poignant question because I think I think there are strong similarities. Um, but, you know, first of all, I would say that just what energizes me aligns to the role, both the investing role as well as the leadership role. And so, I would say that solving Solving problems energizes me. Trying to figure out what the root cause uh, problems are, and making sure that there's a there's a level of human connection that makes the work meaningful um, inspires me. And so, I, I think that just as a touchstone, um, that's that's been critically important both to being able to be a lifelong learner as an investor, um, but also as a, as a leader in a people and knowledge worker industry. Um, the, second, the second thing I would say is that as a, as a PM, as an investor, where I was most additive to my peer discussions, I do believe investing is a team sport, and um, you make each other better by coming at uh, problem solving and the puzzle of investing uh, with different perspectives. And, and mine was um, that I was a very structured and strategic thinker. Um, I could do the analyst role and the modeling role, but it didn't excite me as much as uh, digging into 
the problem that a company was solving for and how was it creating a durable, sustainable franchise that was, frankly, in some large way additive to society and filling a societal need. And so that that was really what I enjoyed. And it aligns very much with being a CEO as well. And so I, I think I think that part was very important. I think also just being data driven in your decision making, but being very uh, understanding of how important people and teams are, whether they be management teams for the companies that you're investing in, um, or the culture of an organization, or the ability to execute on a strategic plan, all has to be with a very strong people component and a, and a desire and an understanding of the import of human connection. And I think that as an investor as well as a leader, I've hopefully uh, been able to marry those two in a very, in a very real uh, way. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's talk a little bit about Russell, which I used to associate with indexes, the Russell 2000 most famously, but that's no longer the focus of your business. That that particular line was sold uh, a couple of years ago. Tell us a little bit about your current state of your business, who are your clients, and, and what is your key focus? Sure. Um, well, I, I would say that the um, as an investor, the most insightful questions you could ever ask a management team is, is tell me about how the firm started and how you got to where you are. So I won't do a whole, <laughs> a whole history of Russell, but the fact that you bring up the indices is a pretty critical part of who Russell is today and, and where the um, competitive advantage comes from. So, so let me start there. You know, we're 85 years young, um, and Frank Russell opened the doors of our firm. Uh, and he, he did so um, under the umbrella of investing, you know, for people's financial security. So he started with individuals. But his grandson, George Russell, really was a pioneering spirit. That's true generally, uh, now that I live there, of the Pacific Northwest. Um, but but where, we, where we developed... Uh, the indices along the way was really at the core of what makes the firm tick, and that's putting client problems at the center of innovation. And so we we did start with uh, pension consulting. So we we were a pioneer in developing the pension consulting world. Uh, then we moved on uh, to also creating 
indices and manager selection uh, was at, at the core of our consulting practice, and but we didn't have good indices to measure the um, ability and the skill and remove factors uh, from the influencing um, the alpha derived from the individual managers. So that's where the Russell indices came from. And factor investing is still core to what we offer and do. We do it in the form of direct indexing and overlays and the like. But but that was really uh, an important academic process, but also just core to the firm uh, being um, kind of a client-centric, innovative core. Um, the other parts of what we do, uh, manager selection, advice, um, portfolio construction, assembly, risk management, uh, implementation, and execution are all now um, a part of what we do. But really, how I define the firm today uh, is an investment solutions firm. That's the, the only thing we do is provide investment solutions with end-to-end capabilities so that we are either an extension of an investment staff, uh, whether it's a corporate DB plan, a DC plan, a sovereign wealth fund, or if you're an advisor in the wealth space, we're either an extension of your investment staff and capabilities or we're a full outsource of your staff, which is commonly referred to as the OCIO uh, industry or fiduciary management. So, so that's really interesting. So, uh, the I think the average non-financial professional understands um, consulting. You know, you you want to know more about how to do something. You hire somebody with an expertise, and they come in and will work with your staff to set up your 401k plan for the company or things like that. Tell us more about uh, the OCIO role. How, how fast is that area growing? Who are those sorts of clients? It sounds like a very robust business line that the average person is probably less familiar with. Yeah, well, um, so uh, the answer is yes, you, you are right that people are less familiar with it. I do believe that um, the industry is headed here quickly. So it may it may take on different terms, but uh, allowing allowing us, the industry, to effectively personalize at scale in a very institutional Institutionally sophisticated manner is what I believe is the future of the industry, um, huh. and so and so people refer to it as a product. I don't think of it as a product. I think it's the core of the of the purpose of the industry and in solving for client needs. And so let me so I'll back up a little bit and say yes, it is one of the fastest growing segments in the asset management industry. It's called solutions outcomes, goal-oriented investing, but when you choose to truly outsource the activities, if it's not core to what you do, uh, if you are, you know, uh, Boeing as a client, uh, they they are not in the business of investing, uh, but they do have uh, very large um, pension plans, 
benefit plans for to secure uh, their employees' retirements, um, and that increasingly has been an area that we've been helping not just smaller uh, mid-sized companies. It used to be that it's more the sub ten billion dollars in assets um, plans that would outsource this activity, um, but even there. Um, 70, I think it's over 75% of uh, asset owners with assets up to $10 billion have not yet outsourced. Um, there's also an incredibly large trend, uh, which we're benefiting from. Uh, we just won, and we'll make public, uh, a mandate that's uh, over $10 billion U.S. Wow. Uh, in the U.K. that has decided that they would outsource their pension scheme uh, to Russell Investments. Um, and then BCG also, you know, tags this as one of the fastest growing um, categories within the industry, even faster, frankly, than private markets, which is kind of astounding given how much private markets um, gets played in the press relative to uh, OCIO and, um, and, and fiduciary management. Hmm. Really, really quite interesting. So, so you mentioned factor investing earlier, um, and again, I think of Russell uh, is most associated with small cap as a as a factor. Is the cheap beta story over now, or is there still some juice left to be squeezed from uh, smart beta factor investing, what whatever we want to call it? Well, I do believe that as the industry has evolved. Um, you know, factor investing has been um, very important uh, in terms of delivering value in the form of exposures uh, to factors, whether it be through, you know, ETFs or passive mutual funds or direct investing. And I don't believe that's going away. Um, It's been a core of how we build portfolios uh, for big institutions as well as for uh, individuals. You know, 40% of our business is in the wealth channel where we have advisors as our clients. So we're the number one third-party third party models provider uh, in that channel. And so I do believe that this will still be um, a sustainable and uh, consistent part of how of how individuals and um, and businesses build uh, portfolios. So, so number one is it's not over. I think it's now just become a core part of portfolio construction. But I I do believe I often get asked the passive versus active and the demise of the active asset management industry. And I, I believe that this is a continuum. The, the real story is a client outcome story. The real story is the need to solve for financial resilience, financial stability. Um, the real need is about putting the clients at the center of our, of our innovation to ensure that we are delivering on uh, the goals that are quite individually driven. And so that, that's what I believe the real story is rather than a cheap beta story. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe 
that factor exposure, however it is you get it, within a portfolio is over by any stretch. I think that the conversation will turn more quickly with the use of technology and better hyping, which, which we can talk about. But, but I, I do believe that technology and streamlining the delivery and access points and fractionalization of shares were, will drive access to factor exposures to become more scalable uh, for smaller accounts. And I believe that's a very exciting development, which will deliver more value and, more importantly, allow us to personalize at scale using both factor exposures, which is what I refer to as beta, Mm -hmm. but allows you to really uh, fine-tune a portfolio for factor exposures, but also customize for individual outcomes, whether it be income or total return or uh, ESG um, or values-based investing, things like that. And in that vein, active investing is still very much alive. Yeah, I think there's a misunderstanding because half of ETFs and mutual funds are now indexed. But when you look at the broader asset management universe, the vast majority of management is still pretty active, isn't it? Well, it is pretty active and, frankly, uh, with the growth of private markets, generally speaking, um, both both credit and equity growing very quickly, right? And so you've got this, this uh, groundswell of entrepreneurial activity and private markets investing more generally, which I'm sure we'll talk about. For sure. Um, but but that, that growing sleeve um, has been very impactful, and democratizing access to that but doing so responsibly uh, will be another imperative uh, for the for the industry and and being able to drive engagement um, around ESG and uh, also make it more custom customized around personal personal values mm-hmm. uh, necessitates um, active management and so I, I believe it's it's always been an and for me not an either or and it's always been a component of the story about delivering client value, which is lowering cost and allowing more control of how to build portfolio construction alpha and allow for better execution alpha. And so I, I, I really do believe that portfolio construction assembly uh, tapping into all asset classes and leveraging technology for personalization at scale is the story um, of the asset management industry, but it doesn't make the factor exposure story go away. It just makes it an an instrumental part of the equation. Huh, really quite uh, interesting. We'll talk about ESG in a bit. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on direct indexing. We've seen Morgan Stanley and Vanguard and BlackRock make acquisitions to enter that space. What are your thoughts on the concept of using software to kind of modify passive indices? 
Absolutely. Uh, we are all in. <laughs> so we do direct indexing uh, very actively and have for uh, quite a long time. We do it for the largest asset pools in the world. Uh, but we've also been able, with the use of technology, much like uh, the acquisition, acquisitions that others have made in the industry, uh, we've, we've honed our capabilities to do that over time. Again, it came from the core of uh, index investing uh, in general for us, um, but that factor exposure investing has now been driven down into the tens of millions of dollars that we can do direct investing for. I believe that's also true of, uh, of these other firms you, you talk about and what their entities or their act, uh, acquisitions have been able to do, and we're all racing very quickly um, again, uh, to be able to use uh, technology as well as the the pipes within the industry to gather data uh, in real time from our clients, incorporate the data, um, and then um, and then make it less of a two um, dimensional risk return efficient frontier conversation, and very quickly make it uh, three dimensional. And the reason I mention that is it goes back again to what I was saying about personalization at scale, fractionalized shares, direct investing, uh, technology, uh, data, um, data gathering is all coalescing to a very, very exciting and I would say value enhancing uh, contribution back to society. And that's, and that's allowing us to really do you know, tax efficiency down to the individual level. Uh, Direct direct indexing allows you to do that. Um, But direct investing overall allows you to do that, Um, allowing for personalization to your values and understanding how that changes uh, your risk return profile and how to get you back on it. So I, I actually believe that vehicles, as we know them today, um, could change pretty dramatically as we um, head into the future, Um, and that's a good thing. We shouldn't be trying to protect vehicles. We should be trying to distribute uh, what it is we all do and can give access to so that, again, um, you can achieve personalization at scale and really drive to individual outcomes. And by definition, you know, a, a target date fund says that all, you know, 55-year-olds are exactly the same, right? And, and we all know it's a vast improvement over, over defaulting to cash uh, to have plans default to target date funds, yeah. uh, but we have a long way to go. Uh, to to make it to the point that, frankly, many uh, consumer-oriented companies have gotten to already with being able to customize the experience that you have as well as outcome. And I think that direct indexing, direct indexing uh, but also just direct investing uh, is core to that. Do, do you want to explain the difference between the two? Direct indexing, pretty straightforward. Instead of buying the S&P 500 spiders, you buy all 500 of those companies and you can say, hey, I don't want to own gun manufacturers or oil companies or companies that have no women on their boards. You can tune it in just about any way imaginable. How does that 
contrast with direct investing versus direct indexing? Uh, well, well, indexing is indexing, right? I mean, so you're trying to get, you're trying to, when you index, you're indexing to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, uh, that's, that's a risk return, that's a risk return profile and, um, and a factor exposure. What, what I'm talking about is doing another layer, which means you're optimizing for a third, um, uh, a third dimension, which could be optimizing for taxes, mm-hmm. optimizing for environment or social or government or governance uh, issues, but you do have to decide what it is you're optimizing for, and you can either do it through p- pure indexing and factor exposure, or you can lean into active, which frankly I don't believe that ESG investing is fully captured or utilized in a positive, proactive, uh, forward-leaning way so that you're measuring impact rather than measuring risk exposure. So we can talk about that, but, but you, you, you really um, do that best with uh, active engagement and fundamental judgment um, rather than backward-looking data, which is, which is ultimately uh, where indices don't do the forward-looking impact role uh, as well. So, so direct indexing uh, would be mimicking factor returns. Direct investing, in my mind, opens up the aperture for everything, uh, both factor exposures as well as leaning into active and personalization at scale. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So I want to talk about the transformation you've helped to affect at Russell, but I have to start with your time at William Blair from whence you were recruited to Russell. What was that process like? How did you come to realize, hey, uh, I've enjoyed my time at, at Blair, but Russell looks kind of interesting? Well, um, I would say that when I was approached about a role at Russell, um, it happened organically and, and slowly. I had known uh, TA Associates, uh, which is one of the private equity firms that um, invests uh, and, and uh, sponsors Russell um, for quite a long time. Um, and then, like many things in life, it, uh, it happened slowly and then all at once. 
And it was ultimately one of the hardest decisions that I've ever made. And I would say, first, because I I enjoyed my time at William Blair immensely after 20-plus years. It becomes part of the fabric of who you are, and uh, we we grew together um, as a as a team. Uh, we had a fivefold increase from 2001 uh, when I took over and and drove it with our team, a phenomenal team uh, who are close personal friends today. Um, you know, to over 75 billion when I left, a fivefold increase and and took a startup institutional business that was only a few a uh, couple of billion dollars to 28 fold increase so it was a it was a tremendous tremendous ride um but i would say the the difficulty and the reason it was the hardest decision for me to make is i i have five children um four of them were in high school and one was in um, was in elementary school when this opportunity came around, and you know, uprooting your family after you've been in a in a in a community for 26 years uh, is no small decision. Uh, my husband was incredibly supportive. Uh, he views life as an adventure, and he's very supportive of of me uh, in my career, and he knows how much energy I get from it. Uh, but but you know uprooting everyone uh, plus my mother and extended family was was no small was no small feat. But uh, we took the caravan uh, to Seattle, and uh, I was ready uh, for the for a new challenge, and it was uh, incredibly exciting. But it was a it was a very difficult uh, decision to make. It's been a great decision in retrospect, but um, but I always remind myself to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and i would say that was one of those times for sure yeah good good advice so william blair was more of an investment bank russell is more of a pure asset manager what did you learn at william blair that translated well to russell um well well two things the first the first is that um the the best kept secret, I guess, that's still a best-kept secret, is that Blair, um, the asset management business, did grow to be the largest um, business at William Blair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, as much as we were well-known for our investment banking activities, um, it grew to be a powerhouse and, and still is uh, in the asset management side. Um, but But you are right that um, while William Blair was a multi-line firm, uh, Russell is um, hyper-focused and only focused on one business, and that's investment solutions. We do everything uh, that's required to manage um, portfolios, uh, but it's only one business. And I did love the beauty of that. I loved the focus, uh, the attention uh, of uh, the entire organization on one deliverable uh, to different clients around the world. So the the last mile is always localized and personalized. But but that 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 level of focus was a is is a luxury. Not many firms have it, and so I very much appreciated that. But you also asked what what did I learn from Blair that I carried to Russell. 
And I think there are many similarities. The, the first is that I had known Russell uh, for a very long time. Uh, culturally, I understood the culture quite well, the value structure, which was very similar uh, to William Blair. Um, and it was client-centric, uh, fiduciary um, at its core. So while William Blair was in the security selection business, and Russell is in the portfolio construction, portfolio assembly, risk management business, slightly different, um, you still had at your core uh, a value structure of non-negotiable integrity, uh, client-centric alignment, frankly, uh, both at Blair as well as at Russell, so much so that growing... um, Growing, I had to convince my partners at Blair early on and also convince Russell that growing is good. <laughs> you know, growing growing the business is good for clients. Uh, you can't impact clients if you aren't getting more of them. Um, and so growing is good, but the client-centric focus was so strong that uh, there was a bit of a resistance and and not as much alignment to grow because we would make more money. Um, huh. That didn't motivate either firm. It was more uh, curating um, the outcome for the client and ensuring that you were protecting performance and serving those clients well. And sometimes, especially in a profession like uh, the investment industry, delivering a service at scale versus selling a product um, you know, size can be the enemy of um, the best outcome. And so making sure that we do that uh, and manage the business in a way that growth actually inures to the benefit of the clients has been a key, a key focus during the time that we grew the business at Blair. And it's also been a key focus uh, and the core touchstone as we've transformed the business at Russell. So let's talk a little bit about that transformation. Uh, You've described having to work hard to change the firm's corporate culture. Tell us about what it was like to do that and why corporate culture is so important. Well, um, the the bottom line is that why it's so important is that people matter. You can't, in a people-driven business, you can't institutionalize anything to the point that people don't matter. And so, um, ultimately, uh, any great firm is a collection of individuals that work as a high-functioning team for a purpose. So, uh, I do believe that culture is a competitive advantage. There's no one recipe uh, for success, but starting with Uh, a very clear value structure that's aligned to the client and the health of the individuals, I I think is you've won nine-tenths of the battle. So I I will just start by saying that Russell had that. Um, It's a venerable, iconic firm uh, in our industry. Um, I'm very proud uh, to be affiliated with it. And what, what what I... did less than change it. Hopefully, hopefully, I've just enhanced it and understood what what we absolutely. And actually, it was a question I asked when I 
did my tour around the world for four months and uh, logged 500 plus thousand miles on a plane uh, is just the listening tour is what what do do I absolutely need to be careful not to break and what do I need to change and so it was a question that I asked clients it was a question that I asked all of the associates around the world we did surveys I got feedback in any forum that I could uh, when I first uh, introduced myself to the firm I put the values uh, and the purpose of the firm up on the screen and talked about those um, so I leaned in to the strengths of the firm but what I what I what I agreed with all of my associates uh, was that we needed to align the firm's uh, activities around values that things that the clients valued uh, more than just liked. So we, we were such a client-centric firm that we personalized for every single client. And you can appreciate that that um, ultimately undermines quality and delivery of service because you, you can't customize everything. And you definitely can't grow a durable, profitable franchise uh, by, um, by individualizing uh, every single thing without it being scalable. And so what, what I changed as part of the culture was making sure that everyone understood that even though we were academically and intellectually very rigorous in how we solved problems for clients, it wasn't enough to be right with, with just an individual client. We had to be equally effective in how we delivered that at scale and leverage the IP of the global capabilities for the benefit of all clients and then customized um, at the last mile. And that was that commercial instinct, that, um, that why of why growth was good, why do we need to change our behaviors so that we can get scalable, durable, sustainable growth uh, for the clients as well as high-quality, frictionless service for them was what needed to change. And so that's not a small undertaking, but culturally it was being less independent in the delivery of, of client service and um, manufacturing capabilities and more about leveraging one Russell and getting global scale uh, as an organization. And, and that was a cultural change, uh, but one that everyone understood and bought into. So let's talk about something that didn't change, and, and you referenced this earlier. The firm's core purpose is to, quote, improve people's financial security, unquote. Tell us a bit about that purpose. Well, I think that every, every company benefits uh, from asking the question, why do you exist? What problem are you trying to solve for? You know, how big of a problem is it? And are you making it easy for clients to execute upon it? And so those are just pretty core questions, I believe, for for any business and for, for our industry. But fortunately for our company, uh, we, we had a 
founding family that understood that 85 years ago. And so I didn't have to change a thing, <laughs> and it actually was part of kind of my my mantra as an industry leader, even when I was at Blair, that we needed to get back to the roots of what our industry was built for and why it existed, and, and that's to, you know, efficiently invest um, people's savings uh, for ultimately their financial security, which we're not doing a great job at as an industry, uh, and it's also for the effective deployment of capital. And so that why is really important. I can't tell you how many times I talk about it, how I bring it to life with the individuals and the companies and ultimately the individuals that rely on those company benefit plans for their own financial security and their future. Mm-hmm. I, I, I talk about it all the time, and it does make its way into everything that we do. It makes its way into how we think about creating products and how we service um, our clients. Um, we don't talk about um, we don't talk about selling products or beating benchmarks. We talk about servicing um, our clients and creating strategies for outcomes. And I think all of that goes back to being very grounded in why why we exist and what we do and how we do it. So I I just believe it's it's core to any business, it's core to our industry, and fortunately, uh, it's been core to Russell uh, since the day uh, the Russell family opened the doors. Really kind of interesting. Let's discuss your strategic partnership with uh, Hamilton Lane. Tell us about your thoughts on private equity and alternatives and what motivated uh, this new relationship. Well, I, I think it ties it ties into um, again being agnostic about how you define adding value to the clients, right? I mean, you you want to provide access to every asset class, capability, vehicle, um, passive versus active that you possibly can in order to deliver. Uh, upon the promise you're making to clients, which is to understand their objectives and and deliver uh, access and tailored solutions to meet that. Um, private markets has, has grown in its criticality uh, to investing and capturing the illiquidity premium, especially when you're trying to solve for long-dated liabilities like you are in a defined benefit plan, like individuals are with defined contribution plans, most people have much longer dated time horizons than our industry is measuring for and is geared toward. And so the lack of exposure to private markets to date has been um, a missed opportunity uh, both for institutions as well as individuals. And this was an area of, uh, number one, criticality of access in a responsible but very broad manner. 
Um, Russell has been investing in private markets for decades, so it's not as though we were new to the asset space or new to the asset class or introducing it to our clients. But we we and I felt the uh, sense of urgency to deliver more co-investments, secondary investments, but do so in an open architecture format. And so I, I did start down this path, frankly, fully assuming that we would either acquire for capabilities that we felt we needed to ramp more quickly, or I would build for it. Uh, strategically partnering for it is is not the norm, uh, at least for our industry. We tend to acquire or build. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a very different time for our industry. And again, tying it back to the purpose, if our purpose <laughs> is to deliver on financial security, um, the sense of urgency and that need is very, very high. Um, and so a strategic partnership, specifically with Hamilton Lane, fit for many, many reasons, and that is just the full power of a firm, uh, number one, that's been doing it for 85 years in total portfolio solutions across all asset classes, paired with a firm that's been doing only private markets for the last 30 years in an open architecture fashion, so looking for the best of breed uh, managers Mm -hmm. in venture, private equity, private credit, um, infrastructure, real estate, um, just across the board, real assets, was incredibly uh, important to us. We're not saying that um, Hamilton Lane is the only source of our capabilities. We still have all fiduciary um, uh, um, power uh, to operate uh, with Hamilton Lane, as well as tap into other areas of expertise as we Uh, believe that we need to, but Hamilton Lane is a very powerful um, partner uh, for us to offer access as well as manager research data and most importantly risk controls looking across the entire uh, total portfolio uh, public to private markets. So, you know, it's it's just an incredibly important uh, time in the industry. Um, you've reported, I think, in, in past um, podcasts, but also I think you might have had uh, Hamilton Lane CEO Mario mm-hmm. um, on the um, on the podcast as well. Um, but it's it's you know there are more private companies, seventeen thousand to be exact, over a hundred million dollars in revenues relative to twenty six hundred in the public markets, and so limiting yourself to only. of the investable large company universe, if you're only a public markets investor, just makes no sense. And so as quickly as we can responsibly offer this and democratize access uh, to private markets um, with the power of uh, Hamilton Lane is what we want to do, both for the individual wealth market um, but importantly, the middle market for institutions, as well as even large markets. Yeah, the the interview with Mario Giannini was uh, October 2020, which is what made that jump off the page when I saw you guys had a strategic partnership. Let me ask you a somewhat related question about a quote of yours 
I've in- interviewed a number of female CEOs over the years. Christina Hertzeller is Avoya, Jean Hines at Wellington, Catherine Keating at BNY Mellon, Penny Pennington at Ed Jones. But you had a quote that really caught my ear, which involved the rarity and responsibility of your position. Could, could you explain what you mean by that? What What is the rarity and responsibility of a female CEO in the financial services industry? Well, I, I would say first, um, you know, we, we all know it's a rarity. Um, there, uh, all of the women you mentioned, plus many, many more, um, are coming through the ranks. Uh, Kate El Hillo, I would mention as well, uh, my global CIO uh, that I was proud to bring on board from Goldman. Um, so I'm very I think we're even in more rarefied air to have a woman CEO and a woman CIO uh, running uh, a major investment uh, institution, so I'm excited about that. But she was the the best person uh, for the job, and I think the responsibility is is to give voice to authenticity and to certainly learn from every leader uh, and person uh, that you come across. And I've had the great benefit of being surrounded by mostly men, uh, but wonderful mentors and important leaders. And my approach, I felt very self-assured in, but it was very uniquely mine uh, and I think the responsibility is to ensure that you're leading in a way that's authentic to you. But I do believe that it makes it um, it makes it a more inclusive conversation. Uh, it makes it more focused on um, outcomes and purpose. And I'm not saying that that's a gender specific thing. Um, but I, but I do believe that operating in a manner that takes into account the responsibility of the seat uh, is incredibly important because people are watching, um, and whether your um, ethnicity is different um, or your gender is different, you know, when you're when you're at the table, you you're required to speak. <laughs> And you're required to bring the diversity of thought, the diversity of view, and 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 make sure that your that your voice flows with uh, the magnitude that it should have to represent uh, your thoughts. Um, you know, again, constructively, appropriately, collaboratively. Um, but I but I've just. I actually said somewhere along the way that I've, I've sometimes, frankly, even most of the times, I didn't notice that I was the only along the way because it was more about solving the problem than it was about um, individuals at the table. So it, the, the, the group intellect took over more than... Um, more than me feeling like the spotlight was on me as the only. Unfortunately, I'm no longer an only, and I right. think that's just going to continue to change at, at warp speed. So, yeah, Historically, finance has been 
wildly underrepresentative of both women and people of color, and it's been a long, slow transition, but it's pretty clear that it's been changing. It's still behind where it should be, but there can be little doubt that it is so much better than it was when I started my career 25 or so years ago. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, we alluded to ESG investing earlier. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about it. There's been some criticism about how subjective the screens are. Uh, some end up just looking like plain vanilla indexes. What do you say to this criticism about the state of environmental, social, and governance investing? Well, it's burgeoning. Uh, there is no question um, that this, this is not slowing down in its momentum um, or its import. Uh, and again, I believe that this one, like many others, is a very complex topic that we've tried too hard to simplify into messages and products. Um, but I do believe it's only the beginning. So I'll, I'll start there. Your, your question was more about indices and um, the fact that there's been a spotlight on um, the understanding of what these uh, various indices or managers, uh, for that matter, um, have actually been been doing, and I think that's that that is a responsibility of the industry to more effectively communicate both the complexity and the transparency of what the indexes do and what they what they don't do. So let, let me start with that. First, first, any index gives you a starting point. But the whole topic, I mean, we're, we're talking about ESG as if, if it were one thing. It's, it's clearly three very uh, nuanced and complex um, uh, desires or uh, impact that one wants to have. And not everyone cares equally about uh, the E or the S or the G. Um, typically, there's more of a focus for investors uh, on some component where they want their money to have an impact upon society or they definitely don't want to be exposed to the risk. And so I would say that while indexes give you a starting point, you do need to get to the core of what um, investors are trying to solve for. And so I, I believe that that, uh, number one, is difficult to find out 
Number two, it's difficult to define, and it's also difficult to measure, and it's difficult to predict. So we, we, have, we have complexity, we have demand, and we have enormous need. Um, and so the, the drumbeat for the industry, and we all take it very seriously, is very high to make advancements in ESG investing and personalizing to those values at scale in a manner that goes beyond managing the investment risk, which is where I think these indices get a, get a bad rap. And the reason I say it that way is that, you know, they are reliant upon data that's disclosed by companies, which uh, isn't always disclosed, um, or there isn't clarity of the metrics they should be disclosing or the materiality of those things. So that's, that's fast changing, and I, I know that um, that Chairman Gensler is, is very focused on that, and we should have something uh, coming out with more guidelines uh, in the near future that will be helpful. Um, the, the second main thing with indices is they're backward-looking, and that's a problem with the data, right? So we do have a data problem, uh, capturing the data from companies. How do we define it? How do we measure it? How do we define materiality? Then you have the complexity of, you know, is it is it scope one, you know, scope two or scope three? <laughs> you know, is it is it the company's own carbon footprint? Is it how scope two it makes its way into uh, the uh, distribution um, or the clients? Um, and then scope three is suppliers. And so this is this is just a it's a fast changing, uh, critical. Uh, and clearly uh, societal um, uh, demand that uh, I would say uh, the desires are outstripping the capabilities at the moment, and you've got to go back to how do we all make it better and how are we clear in our messaging about what our current tools enable us to do versus not. And I'll pause there, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about what we're doing uh, specifically in that so, area. So let's get into that because I think that's that's really important. How can you make investments that are reflective of your values and yet move the needle while still maintaining decent returns? Well, this, this all goes back to what I said at the beginning, which is um, Russell is dominant where the puck is headed. Um, it's part of the reason I chose uh, and was very excited to uh, come on board to lead Russell, uh, because I do believe we're at the tip of the spear for change within the industry. And, and that is, uh, in the area of ESG, bringing to bear our enormous capabilities uh, to focus on the total portfolio across all asset classes, agnostic to whether you passively or actively invest, but know where active investing can lead to the desired outcomes and be worth the price that you pay for the active investing. And that is no truer 
than in ESG. And so this is where active engagement, um, active data capture on not, on not just avoiding risks or excluding companies because of their industry classification, but actively leaning into judgment and fundamental analysis and allowing engagement, i.e. your investing dollars, to influence how companies think about uh, their allocation of resources and their management to net zero or whatever the goals might be. Maybe it's diversity on their board. Whatever, whatever goals are important to you as an, in, as an investor and you want to move beyond um, climate risk, social risk, or governance risk being an investment risk and move toward uh, investing with your values and wanting to make more of a sustainable, positive impact on the planet, on society, um, whatever the issues may be, you absolutely have to lean in uh, to active management because that's the level of engagement uh, that allows you to um, use your voice and your dollars um, to discuss with companies how uh, they will change or manage uh, their companies to align to those goals or not. Um, and, that, and that, again, comes down to how you are choosing to build a portfolio to that third dimension. And in this case, with an ESG investor, where this is one of their highest desires, which is what we find with um, trustee boards and big uh, institutional investors, specifically in Europe and in Australia and other areas around the country, but coming quickly uh, to the U.S., um, is their, um, their um, bar for reporting back to their board on progress that they're making on net zero portfolio commitments and the like, not just at scope one, but scope two and scope three, um, is absolutely necessary, and, and we've teamed with people like Planetrics and other data providers to really give us that forward-leaning level of data, and you can only make use of that and best use of that uh, through active uh, investing and active engagement. Hmm. Really interesting stuff. One of the things you said previously I thought was very interesting which is about half of people being born now, uh, this this decade, might live to 100 or longer. What, what does that mean for the economy? What does that mean for our healthcare system? And, and what does it mean for markets? Oh, my goodness. We could talk about this one for a long time. Uh, but I, I love the quote uh, that demographics is the future that already happened. Um, it, it, barring... Um, you know, outbreaks like the pandemic. Um, <laughs> we 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 do know uh, that this this is our this is our world. Um, and you know, on the on the healthcare front, I do sit on a corporate board, um, Sana Biotechnology. It's a fascinating, fascinating field to talk about um, lifespans, but we importantly need to talk about the infrastructure. Uh, around the world to deal with this aging demographic. 
Um, and that comes in lots of different forms, but, but I'll focus it on the work we do, which is I, I envision um, that, you know, with increasing lifespans, you certainly want um, equally good health spans, um, which, which is very um, dependent upon science and much of the work that's being done uh, with, with biotech and vaccinations and uh, helping us live uh, better lives for longer, but it also ties into what we do, which is uh, I think about as wealth spans, and ensuring that we could afford uh, to live to be 120. Right, and uh, that may not happen for me, but I'm pretty convinced it'll happen for uh, my kids and that generation. And so, from from that perspective, you know, it goes back to purpose. Um, but but I've talked about this a lot, and um, you may have seen it in some of your work, but, you know, it, it was a, a couple of years ago that the, um, that the um, um, uh, Davos uh, reported on this, that um, there was a $70 trillion existing gap uh, in what people need at retirement wow. versus what they have, and growing quickly just because of demographics and math to $400 trillion by uh, 2050. Now, those wow. numbers are so big, I see that people just, like, their eyes gloss over, and so I always try to make things relative. In, to, make it, to make it relative to something and put it in context, that, that, that annual gap is equal to 150% of the developed world's GDP. So it's a huge number uh, that we cannot afford to ignore, and we also cannot af- afford to ignore that we our retirement infrastructure uh, was, was set up uh, in the late 1800s and then reaffirmed during the, the Depression, when most people didn't live past 65. Right, so it right. was never, <laughs> we've never funded as a society, nor did we ever intend for people not to be productive, uh, productive citizens for nearly 40% of their lives. I mean, we, we just, we just can't, can't do that. And we also need to have infrastructures that, that can accommodate that. So it it uh, it's a it's a big question. Uh, it's deserving of solving, which is why I talk so much about outcomes. I, I do believe in financial literacy. It's part of why this became a very personal um, endeavor for me. Uh, is making sure that people understood the power of compound interest. They understood the power of leveraging their hardworking activities uh, to provide for their financial security. Um, That went for my family, but also um, a lot of other people that I've counseled over my 35-year career. Um, But but you you can't educate someone out of a crisis. And I would say for our aging boomer generation, it, it absolutely is a crisis that we'll pay for uh, as a society because it's the only way we can pay for it. Um, but it's the next generation and the generation after that that we need to interrupt the pattern. And that's why I feel so strongly about uh, making innovation within the industry centered around client needs because it's quickly 
is we can help people understand in real time what they have, what they need, how long they need to work, and define what their goals are, the quicker we can put them on the path to financial resilience and enable them to be empowered with data so that they can make better choices for themselves. And we have not done that well as an industry. And I'm very excited for all the things we've been talking about in terms of manufacturing and access, but I'm even more excited about uh, having an interface with the clients that allows them to um, to not be educated <laughs> in a finance degree or an investment degree or go get a CFA in order to figure out the complexity that we've made of this system while still not solving the root cause problem of financial security for people around the world. Huh, really intriguing. Um, so, so let's take that concept of the gap in retirement savings and talk a little bit about the lowered expected returns we see in the public markets. What are your thoughts on other alternatives? We briefly touched on private equity. What are your thoughts on, on PE, on venture capital and hedge funds as a way to offset possibly lower returns from stocks and bonds? Absolutely critical. Um, we should we should a- allow and avail our clients of responsible access within their parameters and goals. Uh, responsible access to as many forms of um, of investing as possible, and uh, certainly the advancements that are being made. Um, in the, you know, I don't want the conversation to go off in these areas, but the the advancements that are being made um, with um, um, access to potentially different asset classes that may grow over time through uh, digitization, through blockchain, peer-to-peer investing, I think are very exciting. And while they're highly speculative in pockets at the moment, I do believe that that also is a course of technological change that will influence positively access uh, to lots of different uh, vehicles and asset classes that haven't existed to date. But the here and now uh, is very real in alternatives. I really don't even like that term uh, because it's such a it's such a big category that uh, gets lumped into one bucket. And the individual asset classes underneath the alternatives, quote-unquote, couldn't be more different. Um, but the, the other reason I don't like it is we've traditionally talked about portfolio construction as a 60-40 mm-hmm. you know, balanced mix of you know, stocks and bonds, and then we bolt on alternatives. And that's just not how we construct portfolios today, and it's not how any portfolio for an individual should be constructed. So it should tap in to everything that you mentioned uh, as appropriate. Uh, We use hedge funds, venture, real assets, real estate, uh, private credit, private private equity. So all forms, uh, co-investment, secondaries, have to be managed very purposefully, um, but with a risk control and an understanding of how those various parts of the portfolio actually work together. So, for instance, 
you don't want to spend all of that money and alpha exposure to a private equity manager, say it's a growth equity manager, for instance, and not know how it relates to your public markets or your Mm -hmm. factor exposures or your indexing exposures. And most risk systems have not incorporated a total portfolio view so that you understand those exposures down to the individual level. What we've done instead is just put a risk, a a liquidity uh, or illiquidity risk premium on many of these other asset classes and alternatives. And that's, that's just a very blunt tool that we've outgrown. And so all of our efforts, again, powered with the uh, partnership with Hamilton Lane, but why I felt the sense of urgency to do it, this will be a critical area to tap into in order to solve for this societal financial resilience or financial security need and not availing yourself in a responsible way so that all investors can gain access either through their uh, employer plans, even if it's a small or mid-sized employer, um, or uh, eventually, we're not there yet, um, but eventually tap into it uh, through the wealth channel. Um, we've given people access We haven't, in my opinion yet, given them all of the tools to ensure that they have responsible access and they understand how um, alternatives, broadly speaking, exposure is interrelating with the other investments that they've already made in their portfolios. Hmm. Really intriguing. And as long as we're talking about the state of investing today, what are your thoughts on things like DeFi and crypto, do they have a place in investors' portfolios, or is this still too new and speculative? Um, Twofold answer. Uh, The first is when we talk about crypto, uh, there clearly are speculative bubbles. Um, And I think, unfortunately, the conversation, whether it be around Dogecoin or Bitcoin, distracts from the innovation that truly is occurring within um, the technology and the platforms and the concept of peer-to-peer networks. So um, I think you've had several uh, guests on over time mm-hmm. um, and, and, and lots of discussion taking place in the industry. I believe it's real. I believe it will be incredibly disruptive to the ecosystem, but I believe that it will be uh, very additive and ultimately the core of innovation efforts as we move forward. However, like any um, burgeoning field, and uh, again, again, I aged myself back in the eyeball days of 1999, where every company was launching. It was highly speculative. Everyone thought that bricks-and-mortar businesses were going to go out of business, and it just wasn't, it wasn't true. It was that every company needed to figure out how to incorporate the Internet. There weren't necessarily standalone Internet companies that truly turned the world upside down. There, there were a few, but they blended both the traditional 
business models with the new business models. And I do believe that that will be the outcome, and it will be a good outcome of the advancements that are being made with technology at its core uh, for the finance uh, and investment industry. But I believe it's a, it's, um, a higher-level impact than simply um, distilling it down to cryptocurrencies. Um, but, I, but I do believe uh, that there are, there are places uh, for lots of innovation within the industry. We haven't incorporated crypto into our strategic asset allocation for our, for, for our DB plans. Uh, we still deem it to be early innings, but uh, clearly there will be a lot of winners and a lot of carnage along the way. And I would just differentiate speculation from responsible uh, innovation within the industry. And I think both are occurring right now in that segment. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. Let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of our guests, starting with, especially these days, since it looks like we're going back um, into a more defensive crouch uh, with COVID. Tell us what you're streaming these days. What What's keeping you entertained at home? Um, well, several things. Um, uh, we're a big podcast uh, fan. <laughs> family. Um, but, but since you mentioned longevity and uh, health spans, uh, Peter Atiyah, uh, The Drive, is one uh, that I listen to with regularity. Um, the other one uh, is Sam Harris. He has a couple of different apps. Mm-hmm. One's making sense. But the one I listen to uh, with equal regularity is Waking Up, uh, which is a meditation uh, philosophy um, app, um, which I find very interesting. And since it's top of mind, I'll give you the guilty pleasure one while I was wrapping gifts last night for my, uh, for my, for my kids and my family, I was watching the latest episode of succession. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a season behind it. And, uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen a show where there isn't a single character you actually like. Everybody is just such a contemptible human being. Exactly. exactly. Um, let's talk about let's talk about mentors who helped shape your career. Um, well, you know, for most people, uh, and for me as well, it it starts with with my family. My father was um, was an instrumental uh, figure in my life. I lost him six years ago, um, but uh, he was my, my best friend, my confidant uh, in, in my career and my life, um, but also my mother, uh, early mentor in hard work and uh, the human aspect of approaching, of approaching business. Um, but, but I would say early mentors from just a pure 
career standpoint, I had many. I learned from everybody. I feel like I still have mentors. I know you're asking about early, but I, mm-hmm. I really, it's equal opportunity when I think about mentors. I, I would say probably one of the most pivotal ones that you think of in a traditional sense, though, would be uh, Conrad Fisher. Um, who is one of the greatest investors that, frankly, the world doesn't know. But he um, is phenomenal and was my predecessor um, as um, as head of William Blair Investment Management and uh, very responsible uh, for, for many of the things I went on to uh, grow from and impact while I was at Blair, but um, continues on to this day. So, But I would say... I find mentors everywhere, um, below me, next to me. Um, I le- I'm able to learn from everyone, and I seek to learn from everyone. Hmm. Really interesting. Let, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now? Uh, reading right now is The Code Breaker, uh, Jennifer Doudna uh, on gene editing. So that foots a little bit um, with my uh, – board director role with Sana Biotech. And then favorites, um, I would say, you know, favorites I define as I dog-ear them. It drives my husband crazy. I highlight them. I dog-ear them. <laughs> and I actually end up buying a second one so I don't ruin it. Um, but I would say sapiens I've always come back to. Uh, factfulness, um, Hans Rosling, mm-hmm. um, is a wonderful book. Um, and, um, and I reference that a lot. And then anything that Danny Kahneman writes or talks about, I love. Um, so that's, those are some of the favorites. That, that's a great list. Let's talk about advice to a college grad who might be interested in a career in investment management or finance. I would still say go for it. Um, you know, just like I felt when I came in in 1987 that the best had already passed me by and I missed the, you know, threefold increase in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, <laughs> you know, the end was near, uh, it, it never is. And I do believe that uh, investing in finance is core uh, to capitalism. I believe it's core to a growing economy, and I believe it's core to solving uh, societal needs. So it's not going away. I would encourage um, anyone coming into the field uh, to drive change, ask better questions, and solve for really big problems in a way that people uh, can live better lives because of your efforts. Really quite intriguing. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 35 years or so ago when you were first getting started? Um, I would say I might be repeating myself, but but I, I, I really wish that I understood 30 years ago how critical it was that we solve for the right problems, the biggest problems, and, and make it scalable so clients could actually execute it. And so I derived a great deal of personal satisfaction sitting across from kitchen tables and making a difference in individual people's lives, I didn't understand how urgent that need really was 
again at scale. Like the, the, the high net worth business was always considered a practitioner business and mm-hmm. it wasn't scalable. Wealth management wasn't as attractive as institutional management because it wasn't scalable. And now all of the innovation that we're seeing today is exactly that. So I wish all of us had understood 30 years ago how critical that need was going to be with an aging demographic mm-hmm. and how fast the clock was ticking. I, I wish we would have done things differently versus you know, being so concentrated on putting all of our R&D dollars into beating benchmarks, which, which helped some people, but uh, it didn't help as quickly as it needed to. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Thank you, Michelle, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Michelle Seitz. She is the chairman and CEO of Russell Investments. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of the previous 400 or so we've done over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the team that helps put this conversation together each and every week. Mohamed Ramawi is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our outgoing research director. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.